Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thank you for joining us, KickServeRadio.com. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Very excited to be with everybody tonight to talk about a U.S. Open for the ages. Of course, I am joined by the great Mats Vlander, who has managed to escape from New York as we speak. Johnny Levine has yet to do so. Uh, guys, when we were talking about the U.S. Open in advance of the tournament starting, we knew that we were on history's doorstep. We knew that we were about to see something very special. We figured we would be seeing something that very few younger tennis fans had ever seen in their lifetime. What we did not realize is that what we would end up seeing in terms of history was something that we had never seen in any of our lifetimes. And that would be, obviously, for a qualifier to win a major championship. It had never been done, male or female, and we're going to get to the men's final at some point in time tonight, of course. But the story of the U.S. Open, Mats Vlander, were the women, Emirata Kanu in particular, Leila Fernandez. What were your impressions of watching these two teenagers playing in this major final, particularly knowing that you had done something similar yourself at age 17? Yeah. Um, hi, guys. Um, nice to be back from New York, I have to say, but that was two hell of a good weeks for me. Unbelievably cool. And obviously, the women's tournament is the one that um, that made it such a success because of these two players. But it's interesting. Emma Raducano didn't have to qualify. She could have gotten a wild card easily. She's British and the Grand Slam tournaments help each other out. So the Australian Open has Americans get walkouts and a lot of Australians often get walkouts in the US Open and the French Open. So the French and the Australian and the American and the British are helping each other out in terms of walkouts. So she could have easily chosen not to, but she wanted to play matches. That's really amazing. So I found out, and I'm going to give Johnny the word too, but I found out because it's, uh, it's newsworthy. Her fitness coach is a good friend of Misha Zverev, who's Sasha Zverev's, Alexander Zverev's big brother, who works for Eurosport. And Emma Raducanu's fitness coach said that in the second set of her qualifying match, she was down 5-3, and she gave her bench the signal, that's it, I'm done, I can't move my legs. And that was the closest she got to losing a set. She lost five games in that second round qualifying, but she was done. She was out, and it was pretty hot, Andy, before wow. uh, the main draw started. So imagine that. She was close to going out in the qualifying, and then she just – she doesn't – she lost four games maximum per set in the main draw. That's incredible. So, yeah, what an unbelievable story. But, um, you know, I think that uh, the bottom line is we didn't miss Serena, we didn't miss Roger, and we didn't miss Rafa. And because they weren't there, I think the crowd really fired up for these youngsters, and they had their moment. Johnny, it's almost as if tennis skipped a generation. It's almost as if the generation that came up right behind the aforementioned Federer, Nadal, Williams, it's almost as if these players right behind them didn't even know how to deal with them. Like, do I call him Roger? Do I call him Mr. Federer? Like, what do I do? And yet, with without them being there, it seemed like it freed an entire next generation of players to come up and go, no, wait a minute, this is our time. We'll talk about the men uh, at some point in the show. I want to keep this segment to the ladies because I think they stole the show. We talked a little bit about Emma Raducanu. I did not realize that she had been on the ropes the way Matt's described in the uh, in the qualifying rounds. Layla Fernandez, on the other hand, had a much tougher route to the final. You've been so great at uncovering some of these players to watch, and you've been good because they all had good 
good uh, runs in the U.S. Open. Had you heard of Layla Fernandez? I had not heard of Layla Fernandez. And by the way, it's good to be back with you guys. Um, what a just a beautiful game and a, and a fantastic forehand. And what a fighter. Had not heard of her. I, I guess she had won a pro event uh, a few months back. Radicanu, um, on the other hand, she hadn't been on the pro tour but three months. And um, it's just the most uh, incredible story that I think we've ever seen in tennis, um, especially, you know, obviously on the women's side. And her game is uh, the athleticism that she exudes is, is, is completely off the charts. And I, I really, really believe that these two young girls, not only is their tennis going to be something to watch in the future, but they're two classy young women that just seem just mature beyond their years and poised and so excited uh, for these two new faces in women's tennis. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun to see how they continue to progress. But I think Radicanu is, is a superstar, um, just been made for sure. It's a Cinderella story. It's a fairy tale. Then the question begs to be asked. And again, I hearken back to your experience here, Matt's after winning the French at 17 in 1982 and knowing what comes next from an expectation perspective, what do you suspect these two young ladies are going to be able to provide us with going forward? Is there going to be an immense, an immense amount of expectation and pressure? Or did you sense that level of maturity that Johnny just alluded to that might carry them forward to where this isn't such a fairy tale? This is actually reality. Yeah, I think that for Emma Raducanu, I don't foresee any problems at all going forwards, even though I think she will most probably be a, a bigger star in Great Britain than Leila Fernandez would be in Canada, maybe may because she won, but because of Wimbledon, because Canada obviously have Bianca Andresco and they've had and they have the guys Shapovalov, Algelia, C. Milos Raonic, they had Jeannie Bouchard, um, but for for Great Britain, I think Emma is going to be huge. But Emma Raducanu, I think, is going to win more majors, and she's she seems a little more determined in a in a calmer way than Leila Fernandez who seemed to me a little more surprised. Wow, I'm here. I'm having a great time. I'm a fighter or whatever. With Emma Raducanu, it's like, yeah, of course I'm going to win this thing. I'm not losing to them. So I think that she's, she's quite far ahead in, uh, in, the, um, in, in her ambitions or what she's trying to accomplish in terms of her tennis. I feel like she's, she can defend, she can attack, she can most probably play on clay, she can definitely play on grass. Uh, but at the same time, Leila Fernandez is a little bit of a throwback to kind of like the Justine Hennen time where, where you needed good hands. Um, you're ripping the ball from both sides. You're anticipating great. And by the way, uh, Justine Hennen is Leila Fernandez's um, idol growing up. And funny that Simona Halep and Lina is Emma Raducanu's idols. Uh, she talked about Emma Raducanu speaks fluent Mandarin because her mom is Chinese, her father is Romanian, of course. And then you have Leila Fernandez with an Ecuadorian father uh, and a Philippine mother. And I feel like that's why they're so grounded. It's because they, they have grown up in cultures that are kind of clashing cultures. And then they must probably have the same education, social education, I guess. But I mean, they're not sort of coming from countries that are necessarily thriving. So both sets of parents have to fight like hell to be where they are. And then comes these ladies. Johnny, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about uh, has been the, the, the mental health issue. And we saw even more of it from Naomi Osaka. I mean, she all but threw her hands in the air and said, I'm done. We've been hearing about, you know, the stress of, of, of everything that goes with being on the tour. And yet here come two young ladies that remind us of the fact that no, not everybody is wound so tight that they're like one of Eddie Van Halen's guitar strings when they're when they're on the court and that their life isn't just a complete stress ball social media freak show. You talked about poise, you talked about you know maturity beyond their years. How about just watching these two smile to the extent of lighting up all of Arthur Ashe Stadium every time they smiled and every time they stood in front of a microphone they said 
all of the right things. They had the, they had the city of New York, if not the entire tennis world, eating out of the palms of their hands, respectively, both of these young ladies. It's interesting you bring that, that point up, Andy, because what impressed me the most about the finals in the women's was we saw what happened with Zverev and team in last year's final. And these guys had been around a few years and the nerves were just incredible. But these two gals, they came out just wailing and hitting the heck out of the ball. And they were fearless. And I do believe in Matt's, I think, can attest to this. And, and I'd love his, his thoughts on it. You know, when, when you're young and you don't really understand the magnitude of the situation, you probably play a lot freer than when you're older and then you understand what's at stake. So I think there's some of that to be said. I just have never seen two girls in this kind of a moment hit the ball like they did and just didn't show, show the nerves. I mean, it was just some, it was, it was just amazing to watch this tennis at this high level from these two young girls out of nowhere. They came out of nowhere to a certain degree, definitely Radicanu. I mean, this is her third month on tour and she wins a slam 10 matches, doesn't lose a set. So, I mean, it's just, it's just such a great story for tennis and, I think it shows, you know, everyone's thinking what's going to happen when Serena, Federer, and Nadal leave the scene. Can, can, can some of these players step up and replace it and keep the popularity? I don't think we're going to have a problem after what we saw this, these last two weeks. And that's, that's the shining thing that we can take from this U.S. Open for sure. Matt, let me ask you this, and then we'll move on uh, to the men's side. But um, everybody is so ecstatic about what they witnessed uh, and, 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 and the health of tennis and the, the shot in the arm that this women's uh, story and the women's final gives tennis. But how do these girls in the locker room feel about this? Are they like pretending to be happy about it, but inside they're like, how the hell did we let this happen? How in the world did these two girls come out of nowhere and upstage all of us is there? Is there some intense jealousy that maybe none of these girls would really admit to? Well, I'm, I'm sure that players like Irina Sabalenka is not going to be very happy about the situation. Right. She'd be a perfect example. And even, even Belinda Bencic, I would think, obviously she's still riding uh, on that wave of having won the Olympics, uh, gold in singles and, of course, silver in doubles. But I would think that they are confused as hell. And it's interesting how you said, Andy, early on that we skipped a generation. So when I looked at what the women produced, the kind of tennis they produced against these two youngsters, it was like, whoa, they're afraid of winning. They're really afraid of winning. Like, they don't know how to win. Uh, They know how to be the underdog uh, against Serena Williams, and they can potentially upset her once in a while. But suddenly, when when they were supposed to win, they they were not able to do that at all. Uh, And that, to me, is a little bit scary. But I think when you look at the way they played, they know how to do everything. Leila Fernandez can hit a slice backhand. She can hit a drop shot. She can fake the drop shot. Um, she can come to the net. She takes the ball early. Emma Raducanu can do it all. She serves well for 18 years old. She serves. She's a big serve. And uh, it's amazing how they have learned how to do everything and then incorporated into the match. That's where, let's say, I differ or Michael Chang, because we were 17 when we won our first we didn't know. We knew how to do everything. We just chose not to. But these girls—they're actually playing with variety in the biggest, biggest moments in their career, and they feel comfortable doing it. That's where I think something has happened uh, around the world in the tennis academies or in the in the federations or whatever. We are really trying to teach these kids everything from these from from a, from a young ages. Is it? Do you think, Andy, because of the potential playing more mini tennis? is my thought, more quick tennis uh, where they play on smaller courts and they can play volleys or whatever. Or it's like, like a friend of mine said, or are they so good because they've been hitting with men the whole time? Women are hitting with men. They're not practicing with each other that much. And is that why their level, because I think their level has shot through the roof in the last three or four years on the women's side. I really do. It started with Naomi Osaka blowing Serena completely off the court. And it's just gotten better and better and better. And why is that? Well, I will, I will end this segment by saying this. As far as whether it's mini tennis or hitting with men, the American players have been playing 
you know, 10 and under tennis on the 10 and under courts. And it's gotten us all the way to where we don't have a man in the top 30 in the world. Well, now we do. So I'm not exactly sure if that's the answer, but the, but the hitting with, with the guys does seem like there's a, a case to be made there. We're going to talk about the guys because, oh, by the way, Novak Djokovic was going for the calendar grand slam. But I will, I will say this about the women's final that I find very ironic before we go to break. 20 years ago from the day that that final was played, you will always remember where you were. Where was I on 9-11-2001? And for reasons that we would just as soon forget, 20 years later, you're going to say to yourself, where were you on 9-11-2021 when the most historic women's final, one of the great tennis matches possibly since Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs was played? That's one that you're going to remember. That's one that's going to put a smile on your face and you know, God bless those young ladies for being able to flip the script the way they did. When we come back on KickServeRadio.com, the men's final, the men's side, storylines galore. Don't go away. Lots more to get to. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons, people are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why SquadPod? SquadPod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the chuckus and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by squad pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with SquadPod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Again, we are absolutely in stunned amazement at what we witnessed on the women's side at the U.S. Open. Emma Raducanu, Layla Fernandez. Of course, I'm joined by Mats Vlander, who won his first major as a teenager. Johnny Levine, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American. And, and, and Johnny, we got big, we're got big. we in a world of hurt in Austin with our football team, but that's going to be talked about on another show at another time. We're not going to get to it. But let's talk about this this men's situation. Matt, you were right there, Johnny. I think you were at the match as well. But, Matt, did you see anything as those players entered Ash Stadium, because you were at pretty close proximity calling the match for Eurosport, that gave you any indication to raise an eyebrow as to what might happen that would be indicative of what did happen? Um, well, I have to say that it's obviously easy to, uh, in hindsight, to say that Daniil Medvedev would be the worst opponent 
uh, in the draw for Novak Djokovic, not because he's number two in the world, but because of the style that he played. Um, I was saying from the beginning and from the tournament that it, this, this, this is a global effort from the field to take Novak down. And I think that's what happened in the end. Even Jensen Brooksby took a set, unnecessary, it seems, for Novak to lose that. Kei Nishikori took a set, also unnecessary. Holger Rune in the first round took a set. Matteo Berrettini took the first set, but that's from, that's from playing big tennis. And Sasha Svera as well. But I feel like Novak in the end, he had spent 17 hours on the court. Medvedev spent 11. And then, you, and then you got out there and realized it looked like, from what the, 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 what the tactics were telling me, that Novak hit the wall. His own wall, physically and emotionally, and then he hit the Medvedev wall. And nothing was helping him in terms of Medvedev's shots, except Medvedev's keeping it in play deep in the middle. So when you look back at it, yeah, that would be a nightmare opponent because he had to win it. Yeah, Medvedev was not going to lose it. But this, this straightforward, no, I did not see this. And I think Medvedev actually played much better and, and most of all, served much better than anyone could ever imagine him doing against Novak. Johnny. The one match that I hearken back to in your career that I would think would allow you to relate to where Daniil Medvedev was when he was serving for the match at 5-2 in the third set up against a very rowdy, boisterous crowd was when you were playing Mikhail Pernfors in the semifinals of the NCAAs at Athens, Georgia, his home court, and you had to deal with that rowdy crowd. My question is, if Djokovic breaks him again, if Djokovic gets to five all in the third, does he come all the way back and beat Medvedev? I don't think so. Um, No, okay. No, I don't. It would have been interesting to see it. Johnny, hold your thought. I interviewed Daniel about five minutes after the trophy ceremony. He was cramping. Uh, he told me he was cramping. Really? Yes, towards the end of the match, he was cramping. That's amazing. But I still believe he would have won it somehow. But that's incredible. So the stress level he felt, because that's obviously not Wow. Yeah, amazing. Well, I will continue on with my thought. I didn't know that. And, and the cramping would, you know, I kept thinking to myself, history was going to be made with with obviously with Novak winning this tournament and getting the Grand Slam and I was thinking at that point where he was getting beaten so badly the only chance he had was if Medvedev were to turn his ankle and had to default and that that was my feeling I just didn't feel it in that match for Novak when usually you always can never can him out I, I mean even from the first game on when he had the break points and he and he got broken it something just didn't feel right for me with Novak towards the end of the match. You could see the crowd, you know, really getting into it for Novak, trying to will him into the match and they got him to five, four, but you know, Medvedev, he just mentally plays loose and, and, and he handled the mental side of, of that match. I thought beautifully. I mean, he came out striking the ball. Great. His serve was unbelievable. And I personally just just felt he was in control, and I, and 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 maybe Novak's you know squeaks it out. I could see that it was it was getting tight, but but I still would have gone with Medvedev had he had had Novak pulled off that set. Mass, let me ask you this. Uh, let me hearken again back to one of your matches because Darren Cahill made an interesting point, which I thought was an observ- a very keen observation that would be through the eyes of a guy that that coaches at the level that he does and I'm sure you you probably saw the same thing he made the comment that that Novak in the Australian Open final was using a slightly different type of of chip backhand a slightly different slice backhand that was landing a little shorter in the court in Australia and that he wasn't using that in this in this US Open final and that he felt that by slicing the ball deep in the court he was sort of keeping the ball in Medvedev's strike zone and keeping him in rhythm. And if he would have used the shorter chip backhand that makes you say, well, do I come up? Do I not? What Was that something that when you were playing Lendl in 88 that you were conscious of was the depth of that slice backhand so that you wouldn't 
put the ball into the strike zone of a guy that could bring, you know, the kind of heat that Lendl could or, or obviously that, uh, you know, the Medvedev can. I think there's a, yes, it's a valid point. I think maybe the biggest difference uh, between the Australian and the U.S. Open is this, this, the court speed. The Australian Open is, is quite a lot faster as a hard court. So I would think that the shorter slice that's low skids through the court and it's really difficult to do anything with it, where I think U.S. Open, because of the humidity uh, as well and, uh, and the courts are a little bit slower, I think maybe the short backhand would have, it would have been tough for Medvedev to do anything with it, but I think Novak would have had to run uh, too much. But let me bring something up that, that I uh, read up on before the match. 2019, they played at the Australian Open uh, uh, in the fourth round. And, and Novak won 6267, 6-3, 6-4. Uh, and uh, Medvedev found out something in that match. He found out he needed to be stronger physically. But since that match, Medvedev had won three out of the last five they've played. Now he's won four out of the last six. He's never beaten him in a five-set match, but he beat him in Cincinnati uh, in 2020, beat him in Monte Carlo 2020, he beat him in the 02 uh, ATP finals as well. Uh, and then, of course, Novak uh, kicked his butt in, um, uh, at the Australian Open in three sets. But So I think Medvedev was on to something that we didn't really pay much attention to, I guess, because they were not three out of five sets. But I think that uh, the surface at New York is not a great surface for somebody that doesn't hit the ball harder than Novak does. Uh, I think you need a huge weapon to make those courts work for you, unless you got your legs. And I think his legs were gone. I really did. He started slapping his thighs early in the match that he couldn't move, maybe because he felt flat emotionally, maybe physically. Uh, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I think tactically he wasn't really ready to – to, uh, to lock down, like he always talks about Novak, he's going to lock down, because I think he would have had to lock down for four hours. You can't do that. And, and no one can do that. And Medvedev, I think, asked him that question. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still stunned. I have a question for you two. When do you think Novak was okay with losing? Because I felt like he was okay with losing, sort of going towards the end of the second set. But then he broke down, if you guys saw that on TV or not, at 5-4 in the third set, the camera was on Novak, and he was actually sitting there shaking with his face in his towel, and then he pulled the towel down, and he had tears in his eyes. He was actually crying. And if you notice, he choked up as well when the um, trophy ceremony, uh, when, um, uh, what's her name? McKendrick. Chris McKendrick from ESPN, yeah. Yeah, she interviewed him, and he was choking up as well. So I wonder if he at some point in that match sort of just, you know what? I can't do this. It's too much for me. And, uh, and then he just, I don't think he was in it to win it uh, the whole time. In the beginning, yes. And then I felt like, take me out of here. I don't want to be here. I'll, I'll start, Johnny, on that one because I did have some thoughts that were going through my mind while I saw this thing going down the stretch. And I did feel like Novak, in a part of his mind, was sort of resigning to the fact that, okay, if this is going to happen – how do I want to be remembered and how I handled it? I don't want to be remembered for behaving the way I did in Tokyo with a spotlight on me like this. I've got a lot of eyeballs on me. I've got the entire future of the sport of tennis watching how I handle what is in all likelihood going to be a loss. So I think there was a part of him that I would never accuse him of giving up. But there was a part of him that gave into the moment and just basically said, like what you said, Matt, I can probably gain a lot of fans around the world uh, for how I handle what could only be described as one of the toughest losses we've ever seen a tennis player take in the history of the sport. And, and, and that's how I felt. I, I really felt like, to, to some extent, he was a greater champion in defeat than he has often been in victory at, at, at different times. And I, I really did learn, earn a lot of respect for him and the way he embraced Daniil and the way he spoke of him and just the way he handled the situation. And I think that it was, in a way, it reminded me of when Andy Murray lost to Roger Federer in the Wimbledon final. And maybe you weren't always necessarily an Andy Murray fan or Novak Djokovic fan, but in that moment, you couldn't help but, but really let your heart go out to that player at that time and to me, you know, I, I agree with Medvedev. This guy, he may not have separated himself as the clear-cut greatest tennis player of all time, but he certainly didn't regress 
from the Mount Rushmore in any way, shape, or form. I don't know how you felt about it, Johnny. Uh, a couple things I would say to that. You know, I, I think Matt's nailed it. I, I do think there was a point you, you might have seen it early in Novak's career where you could see the resigning sometimes, the mental kind of weakness. And I, I think he did resign at some point in this match before it actually was over. I just don't think he could thought he could win. And I think the biggest piece of that was the physicality. I, I think that the all the matches took so much out of him. And I think that typically in these, in these grand slams, he's able to come back and, and, and put the effort into it and, and still be able to win. But I think this occasion with this final, the nerves just, they, they took that extra piece out of him. And I think that's what might've had some factor on those legs. I mean, I just think he was carrying the weight of the world and he tried so hard to not make it about that, but he couldn't get around it. And I think, you know, Medvedev being so fresh, I just think the task was too great. You know, we talk about the crowd getting behind him. I think the crowd really wanted to see the Grand Slam happen. You know, as much as I really believe that Djokovic is is maybe the greatest of all time, and and I love the guy's game, and I and I and I have no problem with him. You know, we forget that he did have a meltdown in that match. I mean, that behavior that he had with that racket smashing was not good. I mean, you, you, you gotta, I mean, that was bad. You don't see Nadal, you don't see Federer, you don't see Vilander do something like that in a, in a major final like that. And the crowd still stuck with him, but because I think the crowd wanted to see this thing happen so bad, but, and so they, they overlooked it, but that, I mean, that was, a, that was pretty crazy what he did. Uh, in the middle of that match, but I just think the moment it just it just was too much. There were so many different emotions this guy was dealing with, and I really believe that he felt this one match was going to be the telltale separation between him, Nadal, and Federer that he would always be able to know that people will know that he's the greatest player of all time. I think there were maybe two people that didn't want him to win that match. And they would never admit it. We wouldn't think they would, but it had to be Nadal and Federer. And I, I like Matt's opinion on that because there's no way you can tell me that those two guys were rooting for Novak. I, I just can't see that. It's an interesting question. It is an interesting question. And to be honest now, I hope that, that, that none, none of the three are listening to our podcast. Of course, <laughs> I hope they are, Andy. I do. But I would have no problem if they all three of them just rode off into the sunset with 20 majors each. And we don't have to separate the three because I think they, they all are the three greatest of all time. And now that we've seen the younger generation just light up uh, New York for two weeks on both the men's side and the women's side, uh, I think we're, we're going to be good. We have enough good rivalries. We have great personalities along. And, uh, and if they don't show up, uh, I, I'm perfectly fine with that. Of course, I'd love to see Roger, Rafa, and Novak uh, fight it out for a couple more years where three of them are healthy. And now they're actually all stuck on 20. And then it's maybe becoming who can win that 21st because that might be it. Uh, that would be fun as well. But uh, yeah, I think they were definitely rooting. It turns out that that uh, Roger Federer's uh, agent, Tony Godsek, I think his name is, yeah. his son warmed up Daniil Medvedev on the day oh. of the final. So you wonder if uh, <laughs> Mr. Federer was trying to do his bit here and trying to help Medvedev. Of course, they were rooting uh, for Medvedev, I would think. But I think they are so humble. They don't going to mind. And in their mind, I think they think Novak is the greatest. I really do. Because he's beaten them more head to head. And I think they feel that. Uh, and as far as Tony Godsick's son, uh, I think those genetics probably can be attributable to his wife, Mary Jo Fernandez. I think That's right. those two are married. So, and then before we go, because you mentioned the, the younger generation, and we've got all kinds of younger generation players that showed out in New York, and I want to get to some of them. My question to you, Matt Vlander: ever smash a racket to smithereens in a Grand Slam final? If... I, if, if you should or if I did. Did I you, did you no, ever? I have never broken a racket uh, out of anger uh, in practice or in matches, but that's just me, and that's just from me watching Bjorn Borg never do it. But but you know who else I saw do it, which was not a good look, was Coco Goff after her uh, and uh, and her partner McNally. They lost the women's final uh, right. against Samantha Stoser and, and Zhang, a Chinese 
uh, in a close match and she smashed her racket and broke it walking up to shake hands and then Ooh. threw it to her chair to the point where she had to actually put her hand up and say, oh, sorry, sorry, apologize. So she must have nearly thrown it at somebody. It almost hit a ball boy. It almost hit almost a ball hit a boy, ball. So when Yeah, she, she went over to the kid and gave the kid the racket. Actually, it was not a good situation. Not a good situation. When, when you see Emma Raducano and Leila Fernandez, and then you see class, up, class, class, class. So again, I, I agree with you that, that for, for Novak, it was not a good thing. And then he really... Uh, I think um, I think he decided that he's going to lose this gracefully. Of course, he's trying to win to the very end, but not necessarily in his heart, but in his brain he is. But he might not be feeling the situation. And I think you're right, Johnny. I think he wanted to to uh, to to lose gracefully, and he he gained a lot of support. But don't you think the crowd? Uh, kind of wore him down over the first 12 days and then also his opponents. Everybody was trying to sort of wear him down. Not that I was working in media, but but still, I said before the match, I want to see these two guys in pain, as much pain as possible, because if you're going to achieve this, I want to see you crawl off the court. Or if you're Medvedev, so I think that we were all kind of hoping for this dramatic finish, but but never ever did I think or wanted to see a straightforward match like we had, and I'm I'm still very surprised. And for all the analysis that everybody will do on every podcast, every tennis show from now until the next major championship, maybe ultimately it just comes down to one thing, and that's any given Sunday, and you can't win them all. When we come back, lots of great performances by lots of young players. Let's make sure we give a few of them their due. Don't go away. We're going to talk about some of the young guns on KickServeRadio.com, and we're part, as you know, of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Spielander, now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Matt is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLenderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, kickserveradio.com. We're talking U.S. Open. Why wouldn't we be? It was it was history. We had players winning both men's and mixed doubles championships. We had teenagers. We had qualifiers. We had people stepping in the way of history. But we had some young guns. And, Johnny, I'm going to start with you because two of the guys that you have been bringing to our attention in your up-and-comers segment of our show – have been obviously Carlos Alcaraz, who has been absolutely brilliant, 18 years old, uh, won a title not long ago, 
uh, Jensen Brooksby, the other. Those were the two that really showed out. My concern with Alcarez, as brilliant as he was, is that I'm, I'm hoping that his legacy isn't more about having walked off the court against Felix Ajayi in somewhat unceremonious uh, fashion the way he did. What were your two thoughts on those guys to start with, Alcarez and Jensen Brooksby? Jensen Brooksby really did have a nice showing. I mean, he really proved that he's for real and that he's going to be a factor in men's tennis. Um, you know, he does have the, the, the unorthodox game style with the two-handed slice and the two-handed backhand volley, but you, you can't negate the fact that that guy fights in a tennis match as well as anyone in the game. I mean, every single point, that guy will give it his all. And he, he, he rarely, rarely misses, uh, it makes an unforced error. I mean, you really got to put the ball past him to win a point. And, um, you know, his serve is going to get better. And we see how strong he is off the ground and, and what a great counter puncher he is. But, but you know, you, you hit a weak ball and he's going to punish you. Um, and, he, and he moves great for a big guy. But his will and his heart are, are really the strengths of his game. And, and he's going to grind it out and he's going to be around. And um, he surprised a lot of people. I do think that some of the guys will figure him out a little bit. But he's, he's going to be a solid pro, I think, for the next 10 years. I think this guy is headed to the top 30, if not higher. And um, it, it, it's another future, bright future for, for American tennis. Carlos Alcaraz, Matt's Stefanos Tsitsipas made the comment, I've never seen a guy hit the ball as hard. The ball has never been hit as hard at me as this guy was hitting it. Something some along those lines. And when I was comparing miles per hour off the forehand in particular, I saw Medvedev hit a couple of screamers, 91 miles an hour. I saw a couple off of Alcaraz's racket against, uh, against Tsitsipas, 106 miles an hour off the forehand wing. I mean, is is this a big exaggeration, or is this kid this big a hitter? Andy, I was sitting next to Arthur Ashe uh, Court, where the photographers uh, sit. So basically, my eye level was at Alcaraz's knees, uh, and I was sitting on the side where he was running around hitting forehands. It was absolutely incredible, uh, the racket head speed and the, cl- the he had it so clean as well. And he could go both ways, inside in, inside out. And he's lightning fast. Uh, and his serve is going to improve a lot too, just like Jensen Brooksby. Uh, but yes, I believe Tsitsipas is correct. I mean, I don't, obviously you see guys once in a while, but he was consistently hitting it that hard and he was hitting it in. Uh, uh, and he, I don't know if he's going to be number one in the world, which is what he set, has set his sights on because I think he needs a better serve, but he certainly is going to be up there in, in the top five in the world before he's done because he has heart and he's got a, a huge forehand, great backhand, moves unbelievably well, good hands, good tennis IQ, just needs a little bit of a bigger serve um, to compete uh, day in and day out, I think. But yeah, he was amazing. And I think he was the one that lit the New York crowd on fire. He was the first guy male or female player that came out and did that. And from that day, it was just, we started talking about the young people. And then Leila Fernandez came out and beat Naomi Osaka uh, just a couple of days after that. I think it was actually Osaka, excuse me, it was Fernandez, followed by Alcaraz on the same day, if memory serves, that they played, it seems like they played back-to-back matches. And then we were all just blown away by what we saw in those back-to-back matches. And you mentioned heart, Mats, and I'll stay with you because I've got something for you as well here in just a quick second, Johnny, but... If he's got that kind of what happened against FAA? Why did Carlos Alcaraz walk off the court? What was the Eurosports inside scoop on that, Matt? Yes, yeah, so he had a, a, his his uh, I think it was his left thigh was taped, um, and I can't remember who, but somebody did say uh, that he did have a problem in his thigh and up into his groin muscle, and it was nothing new, something that he's had. And uh, and then and then that's it. Uh, and I think that he just decided that I don't want to hurt myself. Can't win this match anyway. And I don't really have a legacy to worry about. I don't have a brand. Uh, I'm unknown and uh, I'm done. That's it. So, yeah, okay. I mean, weird. I guess you can go back to Novak Djokovic. He did that, too, early in his career. 
and realized that that was most probably not the best thing to do because that's what people remember uh, uh, going uh, uh, further. And players in the locker room especially will remember that Carlos Alcaraz just gave up there. But obviously he had a reason, a good reason. But FAA had no clue. Once it happened, he was like, what the hell happened? I have no idea. I didn't see anything. So a bit weird. And there was no explanation uh, good enough from uh, Carlos Alcaraz, which is, bothers me a little bit. FAA, another guy that I earned a tremendous amount of respect for. And one of the guys that he beat along the way, Johnny, is another guy that I'm just more and more impressed with by the day. And, I, and as I recall, when you and I were talking back and forth in preparation for the for for year two of your tournament, the Arizona Tennis Classic, we were talking and negotiating with with Francis Tiafo's people about you giving Francis a wild card and getting him to come to the desert. He was struggling a little bit, but you're big on trying to give opportunity to the American players, and he's a guy that people seem to like, and maybe this tournament could kind of help kind of springboard him into a good season and all those conversations that we were having. I mean, I hate to say it, but almost like he kind of felt sorry for the guy and like, okay, let's throw him a bone. And now suddenly you look up and he's beating Rublev at the U S open. You know, he's getting into the third, fourth round. He's given Felix Auger, Ali Asimi, all he can handle and absolutely lighting that New York crowd on fire. How happy were you to see that? Yeah, I think, I think TFO is really, really raise his level a couple notches this summer. And I think that, you know, he's headed to the top 20. I think his ground strokes are just very refined and hitting the hitting both sides, big shots off both sides. I think his serve is greatly improved. You know, mentally, he's much better. He's coming into the net. I think we're now going to see some great things from TFO. I, I think his future is huge going forward. What do you see with him, Matt? Because he really has been, you know, we've we've been kind of flip-flopping a little bit with who's the hot American, you know, a couple months ago during Wimbledon. Obviously, we're talking about Sebastian Corda as being, oh, my God, well, he's clearly separated himself. And, and suddenly, you know, it's kind of like the minute we anoint the next great American, we've seen it on the women's side when Jen Brady makes the final of Australia. I haven't heard much from her since, and obviously there's been some injuries there. We've seen the same thing with Kennan, and we see these players sort of raised to a level that they have a tough time sustaining, and is is it now TFO's time to maybe prove us wrong and continue on an upward trajectory, or, or what were you seeing from him? Yeah, I think I, I, I have to agree with uh, with uh, both of you guys. I think that with Francis, I think he's a, he's – He's American. He likes to play at home. Uh, I'm not sure he likes traveling that much, but but I, I do know for sure that he's not uh, he's not great yet at the everyday work that needs to be done emotionally and mentally. I'm sure physically he's an animal, but but you got to go in there. It doesn't matter what court you play on, what opponent you play on. You got to set the bar really high. For the locker room to understand that this guy's attitude is the same on Monday as it is on Sunday. It doesn't matter if it's first round or the finals. And I think that's where he's headed. And if that's the case, his technique is way good enough on both sides. People have criticized his forehand and his back and then his serve. He's so explosive. He can, he can hit the ball as hard as anybody. But I think it's attitude. Okay, guys, before I let you go, one question for the two of you. And that's this. And I'm going to start with you, Johnny. What in our lifetime, you are pushing 58 here in a few days. Matt's just turned 57. And of course, as everybody knows, because I told everyone I'm 60 now, what are we going to see next in our lifetime, if either? Another player play for a calendar grand slam at the U.S. Open on either the men's or the women's side, or in the men's and women's tour, Eight different Grand Slam champions in a season. Which of those two are we more likely to see? A player play for the Slam in New York or between the men and the women? Nobody wins more than one Slam in a year. Johnny, what do you? I'll start with you. I would go with the latter. Um, eight different Slam winners. I think that um, okay. the depth of tennis is just too great and it, it's going to continue to get that way. And I just think um it will be very very difficult to even see three in one year like the great Matt Vilander did one 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 year in 88 
I just think the Grand Slam is too difficult. Uh, with, with this level of tennis and this amount of great players at the top, I don't see it. Matt Svelander, you've, you've been close. You've been as close as anybody in the sport, winning three in one year. Is somebody going to play for it in New York, or are we going to see eight players win eight majors first? That's a tough question, but I'll give you one reason why I can't answer that question, and that's Novak Djokovic. Okay. Uh, I really don't see why next year should be any different than this year if he wakes up one day in the next few days and says, okay, that's doable, and I'm going to go for it again. I am so fired up right now because I know I can do it, and I don't think a year to him is going to make a huge difference. It is going to make a big difference to Carlos Alcaraz, and Daniel Medvedev and, and these young guys for sure. But to Novak, I don't think a year is going to make a big difference. But So I would say that, yeah, Novak can do it. I'm surprised he hasn't had the chance before to, to finish it off like he nearly did this year. But at the same time, when we now just look at the finals of the US Open, then it's very difficult to say that Novak's going to be uh, so far ahead of everybody that he can win four slams in a year. But let's just put that final out of our mind for a second. And look at the other three majors in the first six matches of the U.S. Open. Well, I think it's a better chance that Novak wins the Grand Slam than there's eight different winners in a year between men and women. But because the final happened the way it did, obviously you think the field has caught up to Novak. What, in 24 hours? That's also hard to believe. Johnny, I'm going to ask you to arbitrate this one a year from now because I'm going to go on record as saying I couldn't disagree with Mats Vlander more than to say that I think that that match is going to leave scar tissue that is going to affect Novak Djokovic next year. I think he is going to realize I had my chance. I'm 35. These guys are getting better. These guys saw what uh, Daniel Medvedev did. We got some monster hitters out on this tour like Carlos Alcarez. We got guys that realize that their time is now, and Novak is going to think to himself, my time was then and I think he'll still be a very formidable foe the way Roger has been these past several years. But I don't think Novak Djokovic is going to win two majors next year. So I will let you remember this conversation, and we will save the tape. Mats Vlander, go ahead. I'll give you the last word. So you're going out on a limb, Andy. You're basically going out on a limb, and you're saying that nor Roger, Rafa, or Novak will win another major. You didn't actually say it. But it kind of sounds like that's the direction you're headed. So we're going to remind you about that one. I did not say that Rafael Nadal won't win the French. That's true. You did. <laughs> I did not say that. That's true. Ladies and gentlemen, they played pro tennis. I did not. Between them, they've won seven majors. <laughs> I've never played the main draw of anything outside of a pro-am in a small town in Texas. And I still think I'm right and they're wrong. How do you like that? listening to and you can see what Matt Svelander thinks of that thank you for checking us out we are kickserveradio.com part of the tennis channel podcast network lots of good stuff going to be happening this fall and in the next edition of kickserveradio.com we are going to hold Johnny Levine's feet to the fire for an answer damn it on whether or not he is going to host another version of the Arizona Tennis Classic, which produced the likes of Matteo Berrettini and many of the others, Lorenzo Sinego, Casper Ruud, tons of great players that are doing all kinds of damage on the tour. Got kind of started in the desert in Phoenix at Johnny's Tournament. So the next time you hear from us, we're going to get an answer from him, I promise you. But until then, enjoy your own tennis, and we'll catch you soon. <laughs>